He's alive. So what will it take to convince you this morning that he is? That's what I'd like to talk about for a little bit. Because 2,000 years ago, the evidence is amazing. I just read through another little book called The Case for, Creation, for Easter. It's amazing. I mean, the historical, archaeological evidence that what happened 2,000 years ago really happened on the cross and him rising from the dead. And what will it take to convince us that it really did and the difference it should make in our lives? You want to pray with me, please? And we'll get started. Father, uh, I thank you so much that I could wake up this morning and know that I can live forever and that I have real life that doesn't end at death, that doesn't just make it, survive it through one day after another, but Father, that I know that I am really alive and I can live forever because of what happened historically 2,000 years ago. That Jesus died and that he came back to life and that he's living today. And I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, well, we're going to have some scripture reading, aren't we? <laughs> Annie, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Sorry, I just work here. <laughs> there you are. Can you hear me in the back? No, no, you'll never. <laughs> okay. That work. Hello. Um, you know, we hear in this country, we hear a lot about Jesus dying for us and. You know, it's just kind of become, okay, he died for us, and he was raised again. But this morning, as I read this, I'll hold it. This morning, as I read this, I want you to really think about this. This was the creator of the universe, okay? This was the king of kings and the lord of lords. And king doesn't really mean very much to us in this country because we've never had a king. But he is the creator, the redeemer of the universe. And I really want you to listen to what he did for you and what he did for me. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. And I'm reading from Mark 15, beginning at verse 33. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. Then at three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled the sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. Wait, he said. Let's see whether Elijah comes to take him down. 
Then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the Roman officer who stood facing him saw that how he had died, he exclaimed, This man truly was the Son of God. Some women were there watching from a distance, including Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. They had been followers of Jesus and had cared for him while he was in Galilee. Many other women who had come with him to, to Jerusalem were also there. This all happened on Friday, the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath. As evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea took a risk and went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Joseph was an honored member of the high council, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. Pilate couldn't believe Jesus was already dead, so he called for the Roman officer and asked if he had died yet. The officer confirmed that Jesus was dead, so Pilate told Joseph he could have the body. Joseph bought a long sheet of linen cloth. Then he took Jesus' body down from the cross, wrapped it in the cloth, and laid it in a tomb that had been carved out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone in front of the entrance. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus' body was laid. Saturday evening, when the Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome went out and purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. Very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb. On the way, they were asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? But as they arrived, they looked up and saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled aside. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side. The women were shocked, but the angel said, Don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there, just as he told you before he died. In Luke 16, 19 to 31, Jesus tells us a story. I'm just going to tell you the story really quickly. About a poor man and a rich man. It's interesting in the story because Jesus tells us the poor man's name. His name was Lazarus. He doesn't tell us the rich man's name. Kind of the opposite of the way we work in our world today. The poor man was full of sores and... He was just hung out under the table of the rich man. 
getting what scraps he could that the rich man in his arrogance would drop from his table. Well, in the story, the rich man and the poor man, they both die. And Lazarus, the poor man, goes, it's called Abraham's bosom. And it's a picture of heaven. And the rich man goes to Hades, a picture of hell. And in his torment, the rich man lifts up his eyes and he can see off in the distance it says Lazarus and he's there in Abraham's bosom and he's just he's comforted and he's at peace and this rich man's in torment. And the rich man asks Abraham, he said, can you just send Lazarus to just put a drop of water on my tongue to ease this torment? And Abraham says, that can't happen. And he says, well then, could you just send him to my brothers who are still living so that he could tell them about this torment that I'm going through so that they don't have to go there too. And kind of a, a simple and chilling end to the story, Abraham's response to the rich man is, you know, even if somebody were to come back from the dead, they won't listen. Even if somebody were to rise from the dead, they wouldn't listen. Now I want you to keep in mind those words of Jesus. We're going to come back to them at the end. And as you do, I want you to ask yourself the question this morning. I'm just going to spend a little bit of time this morning. I'd like you to ask yourself the question, what will it take to convince you about Jesus? That he is who he, the Bible says he is. That he really did die on the cross, really did rise from the dead, really existed as a person of history and a person that wants to make a difference in your life. What will it take to convince you about Jesus? We're going to backpedal about 600 years to the book of Jonah. And to Nineveh, the largest city in the ancient world. It was larger than Babylon, which most of us have heard of, probably way more than Nineveh. It had walls that were 60 miles in circumference, 100 feet high, had 1,500 towers that were 200 feet high. Three chariots. I've never ridden in a chariot, but three chariots that could ride side by side on the top of the walls around Nineveh. It was a huge city. It was the royal residence of the Assyrian kings, the Assyrian Empire. It was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, which was just before the Babylonian Empire, before the Medo-Persian Empire. It was a world empire, a huge city. It was the empire that crushed and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. After laying siege to Samaria for three years, it conquered Samaria, conquered Israel, along with most of the other nations of the known world at that time, Nineveh. Well, it just so happens that God told Jonah, in the book of Jonah, to go to Nineveh. 
and tell them for 40 days, walking through the city of Nineveh, he was to tell them, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. That was his message, that simple. He was to go to the, na the capital city of the empire that was just about to conquer his people, their arch enemies, and tell them, in 40 days, you're going to be destroyed. How would you like to do that? Well, he didn't like the idea himself. So he went in the opposite direction. He, took a, he went down to Joppa. He took a boat to Tarsus, which was 459 miles away from Nineveh, the opposite direction, in order to flee from what the Lord told him to do in absolute disobedience. Well, God had other things in mind. So if you've heard the story, God caused a storm to come on the Mediterranean Sea, the sea that he was on, the, the ship that he was on. The ship was about ready to capsize, so he said, throw me overboard, he did, and God had prepared a great fish that swallowed Jonah, and for three days gave Jonah a free cruise to Nineveh. It's pretty nice, huh? You could pay $900 for the same thing today on the Mediterranean, no less, up the Tigris River. The view isn't probably as good. <laughs> and three days and three nights later, Jonah ends up spit out by the fish on the shores just before Nineveh on the Tigris River. Now this is the question I want you to get. The Assyrians were known as a brutal cruel, mean people, ruthlessly exterminating the people around them. And here Jonah is, walking through this capital city against his will, proclaiming judgment to those people. But in Jonah chapter 3, we see an amazing response. The people from the king of all the way down to the poorest person in Nineveh, all of the inhabitants of Nineveh, probably a million people. In Jonah chapter 4 it says there were 120,000 children, small children. So a million people, Jonah wandering through this city for 40 days proclaiming judgment, and from the king down to the poorest person, every one of them, at the preaching of Jonah, turned from their sin, repented of their sin, put on sackcloth and ashes, which was a sign of mourning in those days, and turned to God. Why? Why? I mean, I would think that they would have picked up rocks and stoned him. They would have brought him to the gallows and hung him. They would have thrust him through with spears, they would have said, be done with this idiot. But from the king down to the poorest person, they repented and they turned to God. Why? Well, if I was in Nineveh at that time, this is what I think I would have heard. Well, not in English, but 
with my ability in languages, I probably would have heard it this way. I can't believe it. Joe and Mary, when they were down fishing on the Tigris River, said that a fish actually came up and spit him up on shore. He must be some kind of a sign from the gods. It must be some kind of sign from the gods. He came out of a fish and into our city to proclaim judgment from God. And I want you to imagine yourself, if this happened tomorrow in Bremerton, that all of a sudden the word, you know, is going around. There is a guy in Bremerton that is walking around saying that Bremerton is going to be destroyed in 40 days. Now, there's a lot of crackpots out there, right? Probably some of you have heard. But, if somebody that you knew, a reporter from the Kitsap Sun that you trusted, we don't trust very many right now. <laughs> No, I was kidding. The editor's my friend, so I can say that, okay? <laughs> if someone reported that they were down at Evergreen Park today and they saw a fish swim up on the beach and spit a guy out, and it's the same guy that is walking through Bremerton with seaweed all over him and he really stinks bad. Would you believe him? And I think that's what happened in Nineveh. It was like a sign from the gods. They're saying, this has got to be something supernatural. It's why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. In Jonah chapter 4, he knew the Assyrians. They were the enemies of Israel. But more than that, he knew God. And he knew that God longs to be gracious to us. There's a verse in Isaiah 30, verse 18, that actually says that. You know that? God longs to be gracious to us. That's what it says in Isaiah 30, 18. Do you know that this morning? God longs to be gracious to us. And he went to such great extent to show that to the enemies of Israel that he sent an unwilling prophet via a fish to be spit up on the shores of the Tigris River to be a supernatural sign to the Ninevites that they might turn to God away from their sin and judgment and be saved. Isn't that amazing? That's a historical account of how God longs to be gracious to us. He wasn't going to let a disobedient prophet keep him from showing mercy to, to the Assyrians. So God turned Jonah's disobedience into a supernatural sign to the enemies of God's people that they might be saved. In Matthew chapter 12, and if you want to turn there, that's where I'm going to read. And uh, if you're afraid that 
that means I'm just starting. I'm about halfway through, okay? In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus calls it the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. If you're in this Bible right here, it's page 743. If you want to follow along with me, page 743. One day some teachers of religious law and Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to show us a miraculous sign to prove your authority. And the funny thing about this is, I mean, this is chapter 12 of Matthew, and Jesus has already shown them tons of supernatural signs. He's already healed lepers and lame people and blind people and delivered people from evil spirits. And yet the religious leaders in their skepticism and cynicism come up to Jesus and say, we want you to show us one more sign to prove your authority. But Jesus replied, only an evil, adulterous generation would demand another miraculous sign. The only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. And this is what I want you to see, this next verse. This is a powerful verse. It says, So the people of Nineveh will stand up against this generation, meaning the generation that lived when Jesus was living, on Judgment Day and condemn it. For the people of Nineveh repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah, and now someone greater than Jonah is here. What is the sign of Jonah? And why is it so important? To, and probably most of all, some of you this morning are saying, what does it have to do with Easter? Why is this guy talking about Jonah on Easter? Well, Jesus is obviously making, and this is I just want to make a simple comparison here, a comparison between Jonah and Jesus. And the way the people of Jonah's day, the Ninevites, responded to his preaching as opposed to the way the Jews of Jesus' day didn't respond to his preaching. The people of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah because of the sign of Jonah, which is simply his supernatural, supernatural staying in and deliverance from this great fish which to them was this supernatural sign like that drove them to repentance. You see that? Why else? I want you to get the Why else would the enemy of Israel, a cruel and brutal people, repent at the preaching of a crazy prophet if it wasn't for this supernatural sign of him being spit out of a fish on the shores of the Tigris River and then walking to their city proclaiming judgment? It woke them up to, God is saying something to us. So that on the judgment day, the people of Nineveh will stand up and condemn the people of Jesus' day because in John 1.10 it says, He came to His own, and what did His own do? It says they rejected Him. They didn't receive Him. 
even though his birth fulfilled all the messianic prophecies, prophecies of the Old Testament, that he would be of the line of David, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be born of a virgin. And you know there's 600 prophecies in the Old Testament that point to one person, Jesus, his birth, his life, his death, prophecies that were made hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, all of them pointing to one person. And even though all of those prophecies pointed to his birth, to his life, to his death, to his resurrection, there were those who simply did not believe, who refused to believe. And the people of Nineveh on Judgment Day are going to say, you fools. We repented at the preaching of Jonah. And the one that Jonah pointed to, far greater than Jonah, God himself who came, who was born, who lived, who was buried, who died, who was buried, who rose, you didn't repent of his preaching. It's exactly what Jesus said would happen in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And the people of Nineveh will say, you fools. I hope it's not the case with any of us on Judgment Day. I know that sounds really strong. I just can't believe it. It's too incredible. <laughs> that couldn't happen. But it's a historical fact. It did happen. You can read about it. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of books out there that substantiate that it's a historical fact that he lived, that he really died. Like the scripture that Annie read, certified by a Roman soldier when Pilate asked that he really died and that he really lived because it was witnessed by hundreds of people at one point, over 500 people at one time. And they were skeptical people. They were cynical people. They were doubting people. These weren't dumb people. There were people like Doubting Thomas, one of his disciples, who said, unless I stick my hand in the place where the spear was stuck in his side, I won't believe. It's nice when one of your friends say that, right? <laughs> one of his closest friends said, I won't believe unless I can stick my hand in his side where the spear poked him. And Jesus appeared to him and he said, My Lord, my God. It was people like James and Jude, Jesus' half-brothers, born to Mary and Joseph after Jesus was born. Unbelieving up until the point of his death. In fact, cynical and sarcastic, saying, did not believe that he was who he said he was, despite all of his miracles, despite everything that he did, they did not believe in him until Jesus appeared personally. It reports in 1 Corinthians 15 to James himself, Jesus' half-brother, and he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. 
Or another one, Saul. Man, he hated Christians. He killed Christians. In fact, he was on the road to Damascus with orders from the high priest to arrest and imprison and put to death Christians because he hated Christians because he thought Jesus was a fraud. And on that road to D Damascus, who should appear to him but Jesus personally? He was blinded by a light, and he hears this voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, Who are you? And the voice says, I am Jesus, who you're persecuting. And Saul became one of the most aggressive witnesses for the risen Jesus that ever lived. What will it take to convince you of Jesus? These people have written the evidence that he really died, that he really was buried, and that he really rose. As I read earlier, Revelation 1.18, Jesus said, I died, but look, I'm alive forever. Maybe for some of you this morning, it's just not that important. I mean, life's busy, right? You don't have time for religion, time to go to church, for all that stuff. I mean, you believe in God, you believe in Jesus, but you sure don't give Him the time of day. In fact, maybe you're thinking right now, when is this guy going to be done so we can have the Easter egg hunt that I came here for with my kids? I can hear the kids' choir. You know, we can. No time too busy for the God of the universe. And if you don't get anything else, I want you to get this who history has substantiated, given us evidence that he came, that he lived, that he was buried that he rose, the grave is empty, and the evidence is there, irrefutable, what will be your response to that God? No time? A missionary to Africa, one of the richest people in England at the time, C.T. Studd was his name, the most famous sportsman of his time, a cricket player. You know, he caught crickets, and no, I was kidding. So it's, it's something like baseball, I guess. He gave his life in Africa, died in Africa, and he said this. He said, if Jesus is really God and he really died on the cross, and I could say, and he really rose from the grave, there's nothing that I shouldn't be willing to do for him. If that's true, if what I've said is true, then we've got to have time for him. And our life should be centered around him consumed by him, the creator of the universe, on the cross for my sins, and now alive? What should our response be but yours, completely yours? Or on Judgment Day, will it be the Ninevites saying of you, you fool, you fool. You rejected the God of the universe who died on the cross for you, came back to life so that you can live. That's what Easter is about. 
That is what I love about this time of year. It reminds me of how much God loves me, of how much he's done for me, the depths of his love for me, and now the life that is possible for me because he lives. I serve a risen Savior. His name is Jesus. What will you do about the sign of Jonah? Our Savior, in the grave, risen again, appeared to more than 500 people so that you could have a relationship with him. Isn't that amazing? I just would ask if there's any of you this morning that would like to talk, if this is new information or you would like to talk to me, I would love to talk to you afterwards about how you can have a personal relationship with this God, the God of the universe who's alive today and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you are amazing. Our love just pales in comparison to what it costs you to love us and purchase our salvation, our forgiveness, and provide us with eternal life that will never end. Father, thank you so much that this isn't just some kind of a ceremony that we're celebrating once a year, but it's a real historical event. that is the difference between our life and our death in the person of Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Amen.